We come to a fascinating passage this morning in our study through 1 Timothy. In 2008, U.S. News and World Report sent a question out to a broad group of of women biblical scholars at, at the universities across the, the country and asked them this question, what is the most problematic, problematic passage in the Bible? Here's a, here's a pro tip. If anybody ever asks you that question, you say, well, either you mean the whole book's problematic because it confronts us all, or nothing in there is problematic because it's from God. That's the correct answer to the question. But what came back was a, a top 10 collection of what the article actually called up in the lead, a feminist hit list. And you won't be surprised to learn that three of the 10 passages on that top 10 list are either this morning's text or cross-references to it. And my desire would be that this morning we'd flip that around. Flip that around. I very much hope that as we spend time in our passage this morning we will see that it is not a scary passage, but that it is just absolutely full of glorious truth, not just meant to instruct and correct, but to inspire. I really hope that that's possible. In a world that seems to become so reductionistically simplistic when it comes to men and to women and to how those differences are put on display, either through grotesque exaggeration or through erasing all the distinctions altogether, I hope this passage will remind us how to dance in a world of stormtroopers. I really do. I hope it will bring out the beauty of what this was meant to look like in a world of militant sameness or militant exaggeration. There's a gospel pattern on display in the church that is a hopeful restatement of the pattern that was on display all the way back in the garden. And that's what I hope we can see this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. As you're able, I invite you, as is our custom, to stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, this morning we'll be reading verses 8 through 15. As we recall, Paul set all of this in the context of the gospel and God's desire that all should be saved and that the church would be a place where that's lived out in such a way that it provides the best context for the gospel to go forth. And in the midst of that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, he says this, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise... I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask as we come to your word this morning that you would open our eyes to understand it. Help us to understand it as being from you, the giver of all good gifts. And help us all to see the goodness of it in a way that will make our church a place where your glory is on display in even more unmistakable ways. We ask, Lord, that you would do your work through us all, men and women, to conform ourselves 
to that picture that you desire the world to see so desperately. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can see right from the title of our message this morning that we're going to see in this passage the call for women to be adorned with a gospel pattern. If last week the call was for women to adorn themselves for the purpose of the gospel, this week we're going to see Paul call women to take upon themselves a gospel pattern in their conduct, particularly in corporate worship. And we'll see that played out in two, in two different ways in our, in our passage. First, Paul's going to lay out what that passage is, or excuse me, what that pattern is, what it's supposed to look like. And then he's going to give us instruction on why that pattern is, why the instruction is given. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our first point is this, what the pattern is. What is this gospel pattern that women are to take upon themselves and enact, particularly again in the context of the local gathering of the church? And I think you can summarize it as quietly receiving biblical truth. Quietly receiving biblical truth. Paul begins there in verse 11 by saying, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. When Paul addresses a woman here, <clears throat> excuse me, he has switched from the plural women to the singular woman, but the audience he's addressing is still the same, women in the church. Some have suggested that this transition means now he's talking just about wives, he's talking just about conduct in the household, but I don't think those arguments fit either the general nature of Paul's instruction to men or to women in this passage. That also ignores the context of corporate worship that we keep talking about. That's been seen in the commands to guard against public false teaching in chapter 1, including specifically calling out individuals who were doing that there. It goes against the, the public gospel ministry of Paul that we used as an example at the beginning of chapter 2, the context of public prayer for men in chapter 2, verses 8, the public adorning of women that we looked at last week, and the instructions regarding the qualifications of elders and deacons in the church that we'll look at immediately following in chapter 3. And so in other words, I don't think there's any natural reading of the text that doesn't conclude that Paul is continuing to talk in general instruction to all believing women, particularly in the context of corporate worship. I think if this verse had started with a woman and had gone on to say, you know, is a worshiper of equal value and importance as a man, which is a biblically true statement, I don't think anybody would have been questioning or trying to limit the audience the verse was written to. The reason this verse and the remainder of this chapter has been subjected to constant scrutiny and literally hundreds of pages of analysis is because what it goes on to say has been far too often misconstrued, misapplied, and flat out often even weaponized. And I cannot hope this morning to answer every objection and satisfy every question or remove all mystery and nuance from these verses, but I do hope, as I said at the beginning, that we can remove enough of that cloud of misunderstanding and hurt that we can walk confidently through the heart of what Paul is saying, thereby also avoiding what Paul is not saying, and come out the other side with one voice as a church able to declare that the purposes and patterns of God are good and even desirable. And that path we are on takes us to this next phrase. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Okay, what's that mean? Well, Paul here instructs women to do a certain thing, a certain way, from a certain perspective. 
And what is that certain thing that they are doing? In case you're wondering, the command verb here in the Greek is not actually be quiet. It's learn. The command in this verse is learn. That word translated receive instruction in the New American Standard is translated as learn in 23 out of the other 25 uses that it has in the New Testament. I don't think receive instruction is a bad translation, but I do think it's perhaps more open to negative assumptions. Paul wants, and indeed here, commands women in the church to participate in the process of learning as fully and completely as any other member of the body. In Ephesian culture, it would have not been completely unheard of or completely unusual for women of high social class to have private lessons in philosophy and poetry and literature in particular. But participation in public learning venues was scarce. In the church, however, from the beginning, this was an odd cultural anomaly. Not only were women expected to learn... But it was not just in private context, but in the public gathering of the church. And not only were the women of high social class to learn, but everyone. Learning was not a privilege of the rich or the intellectual, but the expectation of every believer. And what were they learning? Biblical truth. In contrast to all the false teaching that Paul has been addressing here in Ephesus, what should be received, the instruction that should be learned, is what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 3, excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, as the doctrine or teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, which conforms to godliness. That is what they have come to receive. The verb to receive this instruction, to learn this doctrine, it is an imperative, it's not optional. And I think we take that for granted in our culture today, and it's easy to forget that many of the righteous freedoms and expectations that women enjoy in this culture are the fruit of gospel truths working themselves out in practice over the centuries. It was not the influence of secularism. It was not the headwaters of Western civilization. It was not the examples of pagan cultures that led to such freedom. It was the inevitability of the gospel working itself out. That being said, not every principle driving the understanding and expression of gender today in our culture is still tied to the gospel, clearly. We now live in an age drunk with freedom, untethered to divine purposes, and careening wildly towards disaster. And our passage this morning anticipates how freedom can be misunderstood and run contrary to its intended purpose. Just as the men were using their freedom to argue, to assert pride, to impose preferences, and generally to make a mockery of the gospel, so too the women in the church could do the same. Just as the men have been called out for repentance and will continue to be called out, so too are the women in this passage. And we see this corrective language in verse 11 in the form of two phrases modifying that central command for women to learn. And those two phrases give the certain way and the certain perspective that we already mentioned. How are the women to learn? In a word, quietly. This word is used four times in the New Testament. Half of them are in our passage this morning. It's used once in Acts 22 to describe a crowd calming and quieting down from the edge of a riot so they could hear Paul speak. 
And it's used again in 2 Thessalonians 3 to describe a person learning not to be a busybody, but learning how to work in a controlled, purposeful way with their own hands to provide for their own needs. In other words, it's not just a word that means zip your lips. It's a word that means, according to one dictionary, a state of quietness without disturbance. A state of undisturbed quietness and calm. It's not a prohibition on women ever using words in a church building. That would make our meet and greet time real awkward. It's a call to enter into the time of biblical learning with a calm and quiet demeanor. It actually parallels quite well the command to men to worship humbly without wrath and without dissension. And what is the perspective that guides this quiet demeanor of learning for the women in the church? Well, Paul goes on to teach that this peaceable learning is to be in all submission. The, the noun form of submission that we see in our passage this morning is only used four times in the New Testament, but it carries the same basic meaning as the verb form for the same word that's used over 40 times throughout the New Testament. And it has the basic meaning of this, to order yourself into some hierarchy of authority into a place that is not the controller. That's what it means, to order yourself into a hierarchy of authority into some position where you're not the controller. And it's used to refer to gender distinctions, social distinctions, military distinctions, and even the authority of the gospel itself. If you want to know who in the New Testament is called to have this kind of submission, it includes slaves in Titus 2, verse 9, servants in 1 Peter 2, verse 18, women generally, our passage this morning, wives specifically, Colossians 3, 18, that refers to young men in 1 Peter 5, 5, all believers in Ephesians 5, 21, the church as a whole in Ephesians 5.24, all of creation in Romans 8.20, the angelic beings in 1 Peter 3.22, and Christ himself in 1 Corinthians 15.28. In other words, if you are not God the Father, the question is not if you are to be in submission, but where and how you are to be in submission. This is a reality that spreads through all of what God has done and even has implications within the Trinity itself. And Paul appeals to this ordering of all things as the perspective behind a woman's posture in worship during the teaching of God's word. Notice he doesn't appeal to some kind of inferiority of education or intellect or value of any kind. He's not saying women need to learn because, quietly because they just don't understand or they're just too gabby. No, he says, I want women to learn in this attitude, an attitude of quietness and calmness because they're conforming themselves to a pattern, a design. And what is that pattern? Why this design? We're almost there, and it's a cool story. But first, Paul has one other point of clarification. To this discussion of how to properly learn, it adds a note about who is to properly do the teaching? And that we read in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Once again, this verse hits our modern sensibilities to use the words of Proverbs 10:26, like sucking vinegar through your teeth. It's unpleasant and what our youth might call a little cringe. 
What is it saying? And once again, is there a reality behind this that is truly glorious and even exciting for both men and women? And I think the answer is yes. Paul continues his personal style of instruction in this verse by saying, this is what I want to see happen. It's the same way that he's been speaking concerning all of his instruction, this passage going all the way back to wanting men to pray, lifting up holy hands and without wrath and dissension. He's not giving personal opinions, and neither is this verse. This is a prohibition that carries divine authority. And what is it that is prohibited? Well, two things. First, teaching. This word means to give instruction and usually in an authoritative way. That's what the word itself means. And secondly, to exercise authority over a man. This word, to exercise authority over, is actually a very strange word. It occurs only here in the New Testament and actually occurs almost nowhere else, even in Greek literature. But a careful study of it shows that this is a pretty good translation, to exercise authority over. Paul's trying to make a very specific point, and so he, he picks a very particular word. These two commands are another good argument for Paul having the corporate worship of the church in mind as the context for this instruction. Because if this is indeed a blanket prohibition against any woman teaching anyone anywhere, that's a problem. It means that when Paul specifically commands older women to teach younger women in Titus 2, when Priscilla and Aquila are commended for straightening out the theology of Apollos, when mothers are called to teach their children, and so many other contexts that that is a direct conflict in Scripture, making it impossible for women to obey this verse and not disobey that one. But if we understand the context as being the corporate worship of the church, and the prohibition against taking the role of teacher, presiding over the time of learning, or taking an authority over the corporate church when men are present. However, all these contradictions disappear. It becomes a clear principle aimed at a particular context. And so Paul ends this section by returning to the same word he used in the previous verse by describing the appropriate countenance of a woman in corporate worship as literally being in quietness. So in summary, here's what Paul's saying. Dear sisters, when the church gathers and is learning under the teaching of God's word, you must be there. And in a spirit of quiet gentleness, your role in the pattern of God is fulfilled properly in this. You should not be the ones teaching the gathered church nor exercising authority over the church body when men are present. That's the summary of what Paul's teaching here says. And, and you might be thinking, okay, that's what these verses say, but why in the world would God set up a pattern like this? What does this say about the value of women in the church? Does this mean that I, I can't lead or teach or exercise authority outside of the church? What makes men so special? Is the Bible sexist? This kind of teaching sounds dangerous. Good questions. And Scripture has an answer to all of them. And those answers form a braided cord of roles and symbolism connecting Eden to the cross. And it's a great story. Before we get there, I want to take just a minute to explain how these principles have shaped the way we approach ministry here at Valley Bible Church. How we've attempted to put these principles on display in what we do. 
because these verses taken with the instruction we'll be looking at in the new year on the qualifications for elders and deacons, along with their parallel passages in the New Testament, are why VBC, for example, has male elders and deacons, and why those who teach the Word of God from this pulpit in a mixed audience are men. Further, the further from this gathered service we get in our ministries, the more we have to make judgment calls as to how to best apply these principles. Should a woman be leading the corporate worship service even if she isn't teaching? Would a woman teaching in our youth ministry constitute presiding over men? How about leading a life group ministry? Would that be a violation of this principle? When is a boy a man? When is it a context that qualifies as a gathering of the church? It's not always easy or clear. In our church, we've admittedly tended to err on the side of caution and conservatism in, these, in making these decisions. But it's hard. What is very clear, however, is how integral to everything that happens at Valley Bible Church the women of our church are. They organize volunteers and teach our children on a weekly basis. If you've seen the website, you'll notice that there is no competition between the breadth and planning of our men's and women's ministries. Our women are absolutely essential in our ability to serve across a variety of practical ministry from meals to those who are going through hardships, memorial services and weddings and gospel outreaches into our community like Fall Flare and VBS. The administration of our church is almost entirely run by some of our sisters, including office management, calendaring, budget management, social media presence, website upkeep, communications and bulletins and more. We have women that help keep us safe every Sunday on our security team. And women who are ready to jump in with medical care in case there's a medical emergency. Our women make blankets for the needy and hurting all around our community and dig deep into God's word through theologically rigorous Bible studies. Even the preaching of God's word is not unaffected by the godly influence of our women. Every Tuesday morning, as part of our weekly staff meeting, we discuss the upcoming message and we get input from everyone, men and women, who are in attendance. And if you want to join in on that conversation, come Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Seriously. I've lost count of how many sisters I've asked for input on for this message alone, including my mom. The elders and pastors regularly invite the input, the correction, and even the rebuke when needed of our sisters because the church is not about men and it's not about women. It's about Jesus and faithful obedience to him. If God raptured all the women of Valley Bible Church this week, we're toast. A huge thank you to all of our sisters, to all the women of Valley Bible Church who serve in such critical and manifold, or should we say womenfold, ways throughout our church body. As Stephanie Painter said at our staff meeting this week, when you are willing to use the gifts God's given you, there is a place for you at this church. Seek that out. And that includes gifts of teaching and leadership and wisdom. But why, as a woman asked once in a garden, can we eat from every other tree but not this one? Well, funny you should bring up that particular story. Because it holds the key that unlocks the pattern of how this all pulls together. 
And I hope we will find it compelling, convicting, and yes, inspiring to look at it once again. I'm thankful Paul didn't simply end our passage with what the pattern is, but that he does go on to give why the pattern is. And that's our second point this morning, why the pattern is. Ben mentioned a number of weeks ago that there's a lot of theological shorthand in this book. Paul's talking to his buddy. And they've had a lot of conversations, and Paul can cover a lot of ground briefly when he's speaking with Timothy. And I think we see that going on here as well. Paul's going to move very quickly through the plot line of Genesis 2 to 3. He's going to draw out along the way three highlights of the story that demonstrate why this pattern we've just discussed is so good and so important and, frankly, so inspiring. And when we gather each Sunday, we have a unique opportunity to revisit, as Paul's going to say, to revisit the tragic but hopeful story of Dirt Boy and Glory Girl and retell that story through the good news of the triumph of Jesus Christ. And so here we go. First, notice how Paul appeals to God's pattern embedded in creation. We see first that there is a story of design. A story of design. Paul writes in verse 13, For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. The first offense of the pattern Paul's describing in corporate worship is rooted in how the story of mankind began in the first place. The story begins with God's purpose to create something special with essential equality of nature and purpose. We see that in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And if you want to kind of follow along in Genesis over this next uh, section here, we're going to spend a lot of time there. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, then God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's a big job. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When God sets about the creation event here of mankind, he says, I want to create a being that will bear my image and will receive a mandate to rule over the earth. And Genesis 1 makes it very clear that image and that mandate are received by male and female, by man and woman, underscoring the essential equality of being co-bearers of the divine nature and of the mandate for dominion over the earth. But the way that God then brought that about in time emphasizes not only that essential equality, but also establishes distinct roles that will be attached to those genders. And Paul's defense of this pattern relates then secondly to the tragedy of how the first Adam and the first Eve failed to live out God's design and fell into sin. But first, meet Dirt Boy. Meet Dirt Boy. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. 
Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And so here we go. Adam is made first. He's made from dirt. He is, he is named dirt. And he's told to go and take care of dirt. Do you see a pattern? He's given the unique responsibility to take authority over the creatures God has made as symbolized by him then being given the authority and the job and the responsibility of naming the animals. And God intentionally does all this before there is such a thing as the wonder of a woman. And it's also before the creation of woman that you have the first commandment given to man. By the way, Adam, there's a tree in this garden that you may not eat from or death will ensue. Adam is entrusted with this revelation and it will be his responsibility to see it passed on correctly. There's a little foreshadowing there. Back in the garden, Adam, as we all know, soon realizes that there is an incompleteness to creation. There is no creature that corresponds to him in essence and purpose, which is exactly where God wanted Adam to be before he did the following. Genesis 2, 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is the invention of glory girl. She is made out of the man. She is named corresponding to the man and she is brought to the man, and they are both pretty excited about the situation. In reflection of the divine heavenly three-in-one, we now have a blessed human two-in-one. And there's an echo of the Garden of Eden in the opportunity for biblically qualified men, as we're going to study in chapter 3, to take up the responsibility of accurately passing on the revelation of God and of women having learned the truth to make it come to life and to minister and to echo it all over the place. Part of the reason the pattern in church exists is so that this picture of how God brought about male and female, the order that he gave to them, the way in which authority worked even within the garden, is going to be put on display. But as I said earlier, the story in the garden didn't stay quite so cheery. And even the brokenness of the garden comes into why the pattern in the church is to be the way it is supposed to be. And so we see not only a story of design, we see a story of deception, a story of deception. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Well, we know how Genesis 3 unfolds, don't we? You have the first case of deception in history, and it worked the very first time. Well, at least it worked on half the population. In Genesis 3, verse 1, we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field 
which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Satan shows up and he starts lying. We know that this is not surprising, but this is the first time anything in creation had ever lied. And here's where the first major failure happens. And no, it's not Eve's response. It's the fact that Eve is the one responding. An extremely important part of this whole story is the little detail given in Genesis 3 verse 6. That Adam was right there with his wife while all this was going down. He had been entrusted with God's revelation. He should have put an end to that snake's hissing immediately. Instead, he said nothing. And he did nothing. And it did not go well for Eve. Over the course of just a few short verses, Satan spun a counter story to what God had revealed, and Eve bought it, hook, line, and sinker. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Tragedy. Everything very good to everything very cursed in a blink. What's fascinating to me in our passage in 1 Timothy is that it actually gives us more insight into what went down on the garden than we would have known otherwise. It tells us first that Eve was genuinely deceived. She believed the snake. She genuinely thought God was the one with broken character and was trying to take advantage of her. And when she took that fateful bite, it was in full sincerity. It was sin, but it was sincere sin. Silent Adam, meanwhile, 1 Timothy tells us, wasn't deceived. He wasn't deceived. And I hope you see how this makes Adam's sin so much more egregious and his silence so much more tragic. We can't guess at all of Adam's motives and how he justifies his sin. But he watched his wife fall victim to false revelation without even saying a word. And then he participated in her sin despite knowing the whole time that it was a lie. What a broken and heartbreaking inversion of how it should have been based on God's good design in creation. Fast forward to Ephesus and you had a similar situation playing out yet again. Deception was a theme plaguing the church in Ephesus. And a big part of the problem was knowing liars successfully targeting women. We'll see that in 1 Timothy as an issue among some of the widows and in a couple other contexts. But Paul returns to this theme most emphatically in 2 Timothy when he describes guys like this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, he says... For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness even though they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Paul's not a fan. For among them are those who enter into households. In other words, they bypass the men. And captivate weak women weighed down with sins. 
led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul's watching the tragedy of the Garden of Eden replaying itself out over and over in the body of Christ in Ephesus. But there was another force at work in Corinth, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The one who came and fully and truthfully revealed the Father to us. He spoke to his bride where the first Adam had been silent. He defeated the serpent instead of playing along. He died for his bride and set her free. And the church now listens to the voice of her head and should be immovable against all other pretenders. There in Ephesus, this restoration had a chance to be put on display. Men who are submitted fully to God and to his word, and that's what all the qualifications we're going to be looking at in chapter 3 are pointing towards. Men who are fully submitted to God and to his word are to step up in redemption of Adam's failures and under the lordship of Jesus Christ to faithfully proclaim what God has truly said. And the women in the church are to receive that instruction. And to the extent that it is a faithful presentation of indeed what God has said, they are to enact redemption of where Eve failed. The silent and the deceived becomes the spoken and the received. It's the garden retold through the lens of the gospel. It's the gospel illustrated through the lens of the garden and any fool who tries to make it about one gender being better than another is missing the point and has actually found themselves on the side of that snake in the story this is a story of glorious design fallen into ruin and now being brought back to what it should be through the gospel of the second adam which leads to paul's final point a story of deliverance verse 15 but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint going back to the garden the end of the story of Eden is a combination of curse and hope Adam is cursed in his work Eve is cursed in her childbearing but all is not lost even in the midst of that, a promise is made. Genesis 3.15, often called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The first sign that there will be a solution to the brokenness of the curse from the ashes of this ruin, a Messiah would someday come from the seed of the woman. And so limpingly, the story begins to move forward in hesitant hope. And note this, right there in the garden, as the words of the curse still hang in the air, before God expels Adam and Eve out of the garden to keep them from eating from the tree of life, right after death arrives, Adam steps up to finally say something. What is that? He names his wife. What does he name her? Apple eater. 
This is the Adam who just tried to blame her for everything that was wrong just a few verses ago. But hearing God's plan for the future, verse 20 of chapter 3 in Genesis, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Immediately after death enters the world, Adam gives his wife a personal name. She's been called woman, speaking to her essence as being corresponding to Adam's essence, but she didn't have a personal name until now. Adam just stays general Adam. Dirt boy just stays dirt boy. But Eve now gets a name, a name of hope, the name of life. This verse is not teaching that women go to hell unless they have kids. It doesn't teach that women who have been unable to conceive, who have lost children in the womb, or have even sinned through abortion or somehow now outside the grace of God, emphatically not. That would directly contradict the hope of the gospel that this passage is all about. This is more theological shorthand. Women alone among God's creation have a uniqueness in their role as the life givers. Daughters of Eve will not recover from the tragedy of Eden by trying to be more like Adam any more than the sons of Adam can recover by trying to be more like Eve. In the celebration of God's good design for men and women under the atonement of Jesus Christ, women witness the shame of the curse rolled back as they bring life literally and figuratively, but always femininely through the virtues here of undeceivable faith, indestructible love, and self-restraint. Generation after generation, the women of God step in and cultivate and nurture and bring about life in so many ways. That word for self-restraint that ends our passage this morning is the exact same word Paul began this whole section with when he said that a woman should be adorned discreetly. As the music team comes up to close this morning... I think this provides a beautiful bookend to the entire lesson. Adorned covers the whole passage. Adorned not only for the gospel, but adorned with the very creational pattern of the gospel. The church of God is to be an overwhelming aroma of redemption in progress to anyone who enters into the assembly. Dear sisters in Christ, thank you for modeling this so powerfully. Excel still more, and may that ancient snake continue to find your faith unassailable and your faithfulness unmistakable. Amen.